Ronasso. So let's continue weaving the morning meditations with the afternoon meditations. So we don't just have kind of two songs going on, but more of a duet. So they're weaving back and forth. I've tried to do this over the last several weeks. And so let's do it again today. And that is, as we attend to the reality of blatant suffering, but in a way more importantly, because everybody knows blatant suffering. That's the thing about it, it's being blatant. There's no mystery about it. It, does, it feels bad, you know. Everybody knows that. Animals, earthworms, cockroaches, we all get it. You know, we all get it. The area that's a bit more mysterious is what are the causes. And in a way, we all get that. In terms of external causes, we, we can immediately flick the finger out and say, I feel bad because of this person and because of that meal and because of, I don't like the rain. There's way too much rain that really bums me out. Rain is the, the rain is the second noble truth. Too much rain, second noble truth source of suffering, you know. So we can find all kinds of things out there that just tee us off, you know, make us unhappy, disappointed, and so forth. And yet the wonderful thing is that the rain doesn't make everybody unhappy, and that person doesn't make everybody unhappy. It just happened to be a catalyst. So then getting wise and, and finding, oh, okay, what's more core here? What are the common denominators? What are the true causes as opposed to the mere catalysts? And so when we dig deeper, and that's where wisdom comes in, and that's where there's a possibility, really, to envision, you know, as we're getting older, that we might actually get happier. And even when you're really old, like, you know, 80s, or in my case, 60s, <laughs> 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, to envision getting older and actually being happier and happier until you're almost dead and then you're really happy. <laughs> you know, there are people like that. There really are. But when they're just about dead, it's like, whoa, cool. You know, like I'm ready for the final trip, you know, the final wave. I'm ready. Okay, when's that last one coming? Oh, here it comes. Whoa! You know, and die lucidly, you know. I mean, that's really, it can, the, the growing old, you know, the whole aging, sickness, and death business, you know, all of that can be transformed, transmuted. And the aging and death, really big time, can really be transmuted. And those of us who've known, you know, not just Tibetan, but Tibetans have been practicing Dharma for a long time. They've known, they've known people who practice Dharma for, for decades. How really sweet it can turn out. Even if you're not a great yogi. But oh, I remember back in the Dharmasala in, in, in those early days, 1970s. Gosh, those were really, really tough times, but they're such good times. Just seeing these elderly people, the old shopkeepers, Often, often elderly women, sometimes older men, but just whenever there's no shopkeeper there, they just all money pay me home, all money pay me home. Just normal. Nobody thought twice about it. That as soon as there's no customer, you're just sitting there and reciting the mantra of compassion. That was just normal, right? All money pay me home, all money pay me home, pay me home. Just let me tell you a story. I like telling. This is one of my favorite stories. Really, it is, and it's so small. But those of us back there in Dharamsala, you'll resonate with this immediately. We all know that, that dirt track, that jeep road from the Cloud Gunge over to the temple, about a quarter of a mile, half a kilometer, something like that. And uh, so that was, we traipsed back and forth, back and forth, you know, because it's a major thoroughfare. It's the Dalai Lama's compound, major monastery, major temple, and then about a half kilometer away, a little village, Cloud Gunge. And one day I was walking along there. So when I was a monk, well, it's not really relevant at this point. But I was walking along, 
and I saw there was one woman, elderly woman, some old, some old Tibetan grandma, and she was doing what they so often do, these women in their 60s, 70s, 80s. She was walking up to the temple with her mala and her prayer wheel, and she was going off to circumambulate the temple, do her devotional practices. I doubt that she could have given a Dharma talk if her life depended on it. You know, these people, these elderly Tibetans, you know, they, they don't learn that much Dharma in terms of having erudition and scholarly knowledge. But they just kind of, you know, they got the core and they just embody it. You know, and I'm not exaggerating. It really was very common. So here's this old woman walking along in front of me. And then I saw her suddenly stop and crouch down. And I, for whatever reason, I wasn't in a hurry. So I said, oh, what's up? So I just kind of stood on the side of the road and Watch her, what's she doing there? Because she just suddenly stopped and was crouching down. And I saw there was a big scorpion. Big one. Like what we, I've seen a couple of them here out on the road. Big one, big black scorpion. And it was kind of out in the middle of the road. And she, she had her mala going. I think she must have tucked her, um, her prayer wheel away someplace because she had her, her mala was going. That was the Omani Pema home. But she saw this big scorpion in the middle of the road. And she wanted to get it out because there's a lot of traffic going back and forth. People walking and jeeps and motorbikes and so forth. There's a lot of traffic. And this scorpion, you know, pretty vulnerable. So she's going, oh, money pay my home, money pay my home. And she, she finds a leaf and she tries to get it off off the road so it won't be harmed. Oh, money pay my home, oh, money pay my home, money pay my home. And the scorpion thinks it's being attacked. <laughs> you know, I mean, what do you expect? They're not very nice creatures and anybody that comes near probably wants to kill them. That's... That's the bum part of being a scorpion. Anybody who sees you is freaked out and they want to kill you. That's kind of like bad karma. And here she was just trying to help the scorpion get it off. And she, oh, money, pay me, oh, money, pay me, and she was nudging it with this leaf. And the scorpion was go, I dare you, I dare you. Had, it, had his little stinger over you, you know, I can, you, I can, I can handle you, you know. And, so, and oh, money, pay me, and he kept on circling around and circling around. And then, then the drama started. Because there was literally, and I kid you not, there was literally a herd of buffalo. Now, not American bison. It wasn't a million of them. It was about it was about four or five great big plodding water buffalo with feet about you know hoofs like that, and the hoof could come down on a scorpion. They'd never even notice, you know. And so, literally, there's behind, right behind me, there's this herd of buffalo, and the Indian buffalo herd, whack, 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 and boom, boom, boom. The buffalo are coming. The buffalo are coming with their great big hoofs, five or six of them, and that scorpion's still out in the road. Old Granny sees it. Oh, oh, many pemo, oh, many pemo, oh, many pemo, come on, come on, and he wouldn't budge. He just kept on feeling he was attacked. And he was circling around, circling around. She's seeing the buffalo now, getting really close, and uh, and then she's saying, Ninja, Ninja, like you sweet little thing, you. Ninja means compassion. It all means, oh, you sweet thing. Oh, ninja. Oh, money pen. Oh, ninja. <laughs> so finally the buffalo are almost there. I mean, he's just about to get crunched because, you know, big buffalo feet. And so finally when she sees this guy, this little scorpion, is just not cooperating, she takes the leaf, which isn't much bigger than the scorpion. She manages to scoop it under the scorpion, lifts it up, and takes it over to the side, and rescues it that way. And then as soon as it was done, and she didn't know there was an audience, she didn't know that I would tell the story many, many times afterwards. <laughs> uh, I was utterly inconsequential. I might have, might, might, may as well have been a ghost or invisible. She was just doing what was natural. And then as soon as she rescued the scorpion, she saw it was off the side and scuttling off, having 
survived the attack by the elderly <laughs> Tibetan woman with her omani ninje ninje. He scuttled off, and then she just went on, got her prayer well out, and then it was, you know, let's get this right, you know. She's heading off to the temple to do her circumambulations, her devotions. So just seeing something like that, you know, just knowing that this this was normal, that I as a Westerner noted this, and it really it really struck me. Wow, that is so cool. That is so good. For the Tibetans, they would say, oh yeah, she's saving the scorpion. Sure, that's, that's what we do. That's what we do. You know, that was normal. That was normal. So little acts of virtue like that. That makes all the difference. And seeing the serenity, so many of these, I knew, knew a lot of elderly Tibetan women, uh, men and women, just townspeople. I mean, of course, all, knowing old monks and yogis, you expect, ex- expect them to be exceptional. They've devoted their whole lives to Dharma. Of course they are, and they are. They're really quite remarkable. But it was also true for people who just lived more ordinary lives, you know, running a little shop, been farmers, they'd been this, they'd been that, but just devoting their lives to Dharma. And there's such a mellowness such a relaxation quality there, uh, kind of a sweetness, a calmness, and a serenity in the face of death, and knowing that now there's really nothing else to do besides Dharma. I've done everything I needed to do. Now it's just Om Mahom. That's going to carry me through. You know? So, to envision that, simple things like that, doesn't require becoming a great yogi. So, this practice settling the mind in its natural state. That's where we're going. And it relates to the questions from this morning, and that is, what are the actual causes of misery, of blatant suffering, and especially focusing on the mental? Of course, anger really is like a hot poker right in the eye. It really hurts. And generally, among the three poisons, anger is the most virulent. It's the most obviously painful. And among the three higher trainings, ethics and samadhi and wisdom, the, the ethics is the most directly applicable and the lack of ethics is the most directly responsible for so much unnecessary suffering. So when we think, I've used this term before, the lions at the gate, as a metaphor, and that is why if, if our nature, just the substrate, let alone Buddha nature, just the substrate, if its nature is blissful, luminous, luminous and non-conceptual, serene, why aren't we experiencing that? Why isn't that just normal for us? And then, of course, there are these lions at the gate. The first one being, if we are not only experiencing mental afflictions, but manifesting them in the world, that creates a lot of discord, a lot of suffering for ourselves and others. And that's going to be a massive distraction, just pulling us away from any kind of clarity and inner calm. So there's one big lion at the gate. And I'm going to draw two strands together here. And that is, in the the Buddha Dharma, of course, there it is, ethics is the foundation. But I know that Kim is also teaching, as a yoga teacher, who is also very well versed in Buddhism, uh, the Ashtanga, Ashtanga, Ashtanga Yoga. Now, I'm not highly trained in that, but years ago I studied Sanskrit, did some translations of it. It was fun, kind of an exercise. And anybody who knows anything about the Ashtanga, Ashtanga Yoga, the Eightfold Yoga of Patanjali, is that it starts not with some asana, it starts with yama niyama, it starts with ethics. Here is the kind of conduct that is conducive to the path of yoga, it will support you, nurture you in the practice. And here's the type of conduct that will be antithetical to the path of yoga. And you better get this straight before you start, because otherwise nothing else is going to go well. That's the kind of thing that I know Kim doesn't do this, but I think in the modern popularization of yoga, oh, ethics, well, never mind that. Let's just get on to the, uh, the asanas. And so it's often you know, skipped, just like in the popularization of, of mindfulness and other kinds of practices. TM also, and I have no criticism of TM, 
But when med meditation gets popularized, whether it's by the Hindus, the Buddhists, or anybody, the first thing to go is usually the ethics. <laughs> you know? It doesn't sell. It just doesn't sell very well. You know, People don't want to be told what to do. But of course, if our whole way of life or aspects of our way of life is incompatible with meditation, with yoga, and so forth, then all it winds up being is being a mental exercise or physical calisthenics. Just one more stretching exercise. So there's the first lion at the gate, whether one is following the path of yoga, following a Buddhist path, the lion at the gate. And then we go inward, now in this purely meditative path, as we see in the settling the mind in this natural state, another lion at the gate, which is really going to prevent us from penetrating down to the ground of our own awareness, to really the nature of the mind, is when mental afflictions come up, since of course they'll come up. That's it's, it's not optional. We can't simply decide, okay, no more mental afflictions for me. It doesn't work that way. They will come up. Until they're eradicated, they will come up. But when they come up, when they come up, if there's the cognitive fusion with them, we've identified with them, let alone act out of them, that's a major lion of the gate. And so that's exactly where the practice of settling the mind comes in. That when these mental afflictions arise, the first thing, and this is a profound truth in modern psychology, the work of Paul Ekman and so forth, and such a core truth of the Buddhist path as well. The mental afflictions come up. If you are aware of them, you have the possibility of making a choice. And if you're not aware of them, if you don't recognize a mental affliction as a mental affliction, and they just come in and take over, then you have no choice. You'll simply be acting out of the mental affliction and compounding more suffering for yourself and others. But if you have enough discernment, intelligence, knowledge and understanding to recognize a mental affliction for what it is, that is, not all desires are the mental fiction of craving, attachment. Not all desires. And likewise, not all aversion, not all I don't like, is the mental affliction of anger and hostility. Right? I don't like tofu, not because the taste is so bad. I mean, what's to dislike? It doesn't have any taste. you know. But I can't digest it. It really ruins my digestion system. So I'm averse to tofu. Not like I hate it, but I don't want it. If it's there, I won't eat it unless it's kind of like the only thing there. And then I, there we go. I'd rather starve. <laughs> Smell really bad and starve. <laughs> but there it is. But, you know, just being averse to tofu, it's not hatred. It's just like, can't digest it. Some people like this type, this type, you know, so no, no problem. But recognizing what's the difference between simply a disliking for something and aversion for something. I despise racism. I really despise racism. But it's the action, not people. So I don't see any problem with that. I, I don't want to despise racism any less. Right? And likewise, vices, really. Not to be embraced. So, I don't think it's a problem there. You find many, looking at, the, looking at meditating on the disadvantages of mental afflictions, of various types of non-wholesome behavior. It's very much part of Dharma. So recognizing, yes, there's a version that's a very healthy aversion. Here's a neutral version, you don't like tofu, whatever. It's not virtuous, not not virtuous, it's whatever. And then there's the mental afflictions. So recognizing them, and when they arise, recognizing them for what they are, seeing their face, and recognizing, and then not cognitively fusing with them. There immediately, one of the great lions at the gate has been subdued. Subdued. So that's really what this... Settling the mind in its natural state is one of its great strengths. It's not simply withdrawing from or going to a detour around the mental afflictions, facing them squarely, recognizing them for what they are, being present with them.
without dissociation, without withdrawal, without fusing, just being present. It's very powerful. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. So there's one of the, the core strengths of this whole practice. Now, quite a number of you over this last week, as I've met with you one-on-one, have told you you've had a very interesting week, challenging week. In most cases, I, I, I wouldn't would try to say every single one, but in most cases, as you reported on, reported to me, just how it's going, um, some very healthy dredging is going on. Some very healthy dredging. Overall, I don't, I don't see anything coming because of practicing incorrectly. Of course, that can happen on occasion. But overall, as you've reported, physiological stuff happening, psychological stuff happening, dreams happening, and so forth. The dredging that's taking place, even if it's sometimes really quite unpleasant, overall, I'm kind of thinking, oh, good. You're doing the work that needs to be done. This is not covering over these mental fictions with really nice mantras or really sweet thoughts or happy visualizations or I, you know, I'm really miserable but at least I'm a deity. <laughs> you know? I'm really hot-tempered and have low self-esteem. I'm very irritable and selfish but at least I'm Avalokiteshvara and that makes me feel somewhat better. You know? That kind of juxtaposition is not too realistic. And so to have that clarity, to really face what's coming up, be present with it, recognize that's not me, one of the lions at the gate gets subdued. Now, as not just the mental afflictions, but sometimes sadness arises, depression arises, anxiety arises, sometimes debilitating doubt and uncertainty arise. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Hope and fear arising. Is it, I, don't think, I don't think I'm ever going to be good at this. Why did I come here? Oh, maybe I'm going to do really well. All this kind of vacillation. When these come up, when these come up, if you can just face them squarely, when you see them coming up, whether it's anger, whether it's some, some have experienced strong desires coming up, cravings, like sensual or sexual cravings coming up, some anger out of the blue coming up, fear, anxiety coming up, self-doubt coming up, all kinds of stuff comes up. If you can just be present with it and observe it with interest, with interest, you know, some people are really interested in snakes. I think some people, when they're teenagers, think, wow, when I grow up, I want to study snakes. I want to study spiders. I want to study smallpox. And that's, so that's good. Then we have multiple types of zoologists studying different species. I actually wanted to be a wildlife biologist when I was growing up. I like bears and wolves myself, you know. Wasn't so crazy about snakes or spiders. But if you have a real interest in them, even if they're, you know, not visually so pleasing, like scorpions, some people really love to study scorpions, spiders, earthworms, intestinal parasites. If you're really interested, then it's different than just, how do you say, bearing it. So if one can be taken interest in these emotions, even the unpleasant ones, even the kind of the ones that have a sting, have some, maybe some toxic, some poison in them, like a scorpion or rattlesnake, see these mental things come up. If you can take an interest in them and just watch them, oh, here comes anger. Oh, here comes craving. Here comes fear etc. Take an interest in them. Observe them without distraction, without grasping. I really invite you, watch what happens. Watch what happens. It's so easy to feel the victim of our own minds, victim of our own habits. But if we can simply take an interest and bring that quality of awareness, 
I really invite you, watch what happens to them. If you really maintain that interest, that focus, attend to them, watch what happens. Very interesting. So, the element that I said I would introduce today, kind of high time, I could have done it in the last cycle, but now here we are in the fourth cycle, better late than never, is an element that was introduced by Lit Lingma. He didn't invent this method, it's really very well known in Tibetan Buddhism, and it's commonly taught. As I mentioned, I think this morning, or very recently, there's the gentle vas breathing, and then there's a full-fledged macho-macho uh, vas breathing. I won't go into the latter at all, that's really for developing tummo and and so forth. But the gentle vas breathing is it is really gentle, and I was and I will teach this with a free conscience, with a very clear conscience, that if you've learned it correctly, the chances of it harming you are so negligible, I'm not gonna lose lose any sleep over it. Really, there's just no reason it should ever harm you, even if you did it every day. And so, I want to describe it. It's very easy. Uh, it is an optional auxiliary practice to settling the mind in its natural state. You could add it to also the uh, awareness of awareness, if you're so inclined. I, you could add it to mindfulness of breathing, but I don't recommend it. And mindfulness of breathing, just kind of keep it as it is. This is not really part of that. But the gentle loss breathing can go very well with both settling the mind, where Lit Up explicitly taught it, no reason it can't be added to awareness of awareness, or shamatha without a sign. Uh, first of all, I would strongly suggest practice only if your if your torso is vertical. Uh, in a reclining chair, supine, I would not recommend it. Not that it would really harm you, but it would just be it's not suitable. My, my sense is just not suitable for anything other than a vertical position, your, your torso vertical. Moreover, you want a good posture. You don't want to be slouching or anything like that. So a good, a good proper posture, spine erect, spine straight, shoulders relaxed, all of that. And then see that your breathing continues to flow in its natural respiration. This is not a breathing exercise in the sense of trying to breathe deeply, breathing shallowly, long out-breath, all of that, that has a place. And Kim may very well teach that in teaching pranayama. Regulating the breath does have a place in certain type of practices. Regulating the, br- the breath in terms of how long it is, retention, all of that, is not, at least not as I was taught, and I was taught this by Kimbo Jigme Pinso, and later by Gautra Rinpoche, and then also an old friend of mine, Sangi Kondo. She kind of confirmed my understanding of it to make sure I was on the right track. And so, but it's a simple practice. So there you are, sitting in a proper posture, sitting upright, the breathing just flowing naturally, unforced, unregulated, as you've already learned from settling the respiration and the natural rhythm. And so now I'm going to exaggerate by putting my hands on the belly. You don't do that. You put them wherever you like. But I'm going to make it just obvious so you can see what happens to my belly when I'll breathe pretty normally here, but a bit, a bit exaggerated so you can see it. So I'm just breathing. You're going to see something really normal here, really obvious. There's one breath, here comes another one. So, totally uninteresting. The, I'm keeping the belly nice and soft and loose, which you want to do. Sitting upright, abdominals, muscles relax, and so the belly comes out as I breathe in. Fairly deep breath. And then, it just gently comes back as I breathe out. Totally normal. That's just called breathing. But now the gentle vas breath. Well, vas means pot, like one of those clay pots. So as we say pot belly, well, that guy's got a pot belly. Well, shaped like a pot, right? That's what exactly they're referring to. We call it gentle pot breathing. 
I think gentle vas breathing is a bit more common translation. So in the gentle vas breathing, the in-breath comes in normally and the abdomen expands normally. I just breathe out. I'm going to breathe in again. Now, anybody listening to my podcast, you can't see my hands or my belly, but you can see when I when I'm breathing in, the belly does get pot shaped, pot shaped. I have a little bit of a pot, but not that much. Take my word for it. Uh, but as the breath goes out and you're just releasing it normally, you with very gently, with very very little, how do you say, effort by way of muscles, just a little bit. You just hold this fullness. So as much as it came out as you just breathe normally, you hold almost that fullness. Not quite, maybe 80%, 90% of the fullness that was there when you're fully inhaled. And as I breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. So the belly comes back a little bit as I'm breathing out, but that fullness is very gently held. It takes so little effort. But what means that what that means is throughout the whole course of inhalation, exhalation, that fullness is being held there, and so you're kind of breathing into an already pot-like shape of the belly. Nothing forceful here, and then no bandhas, no contraction of the sphincter, no manipulation of the breath. Cool it with all of that, just holding a fullness there, and then letting the breath just flow. Now, in my experience of this, and I've been doing it for years, off and on, when I'm breathing out, the fullness is still there, but it's kind of like a settling. Kind of like it's full, and then it's simply instead of retracting, it goes, it maintains the fullness, and then just settles down, and it gets grounded as I'm breathing out. And there's an overall... Did we, I think, just lose the sound? Maybe not. There's an overall sense of getting grounded in the practice, feeling grounded in the body. Have we lost the electricity? It sounds like there's an amplification. Can you tell? There is not. And you, you, yeah, it would be good if this is on the podcast. Just if we, if, it, if we can, if it's not possible, then that's the breaks. They don't get the transmission. So we're testing, testing. Is it working now? Can, um, Elena, can you can you hear me through the... Less than before, yeah? Now it's better. Okay, and I can hear it as well. Good. Anila? You can hear the, good. Thank you, Diego. You work your magic. Wonderful. So we're almost finished here. Good, now I can hear it quite, the amplification quite clearly. So, but the overall feel of it is, number one, totally unstrenuous. This is not a workout very easy, very gentle, and overall, somatically speaking, kind of a sense of groundedness. The awareness does come down to the belly a bit, because you're doing something there. And coming down, as, as usual, when the attention comes down a bit, there's a grounding quality, and there's kind of a fullness, kind of a softness in the belly altogether. Now, when you're first doing this, it takes an effort, because you're doing something you haven't done before, so you're thinking about it, which means, if you're doing this while you're settling the mind in its natural state, then you're multitasking, because you're going to the space of the mind, looking thoughts, images, and then you're coming to the breath, to the belly, then back to the mind, back. So you're, you're ba- basically breaking up or interfering with the flow of mindfulness on the space of the mind and its contents. 
But again, this is such a simple task that within oh, really a relatively short time, you just get into the flow of it. And then you're just holding that. I mean, it doesn't take any more intelligence. You're holding the fullness. That's it. Just hold the fullness and breathe naturally. So then it's easier than riding a bike. You know, you, then you just pedal and just do your thing. You don't have to think about it or give any special attention to it at all. So when it becomes natural, it becomes quite effortless, then you can quite single-pointedly do the practice, focusing on the space of the mind and its contents. And then you just have this kind of fullness down there. Now, why would one do this? Why did Ledha Limba teach it? And bearing in mind, many instructions on this practice do not include this gentle vast breathing. So it's clearly not mandatory. But Ledha Limba, being a very accomplished Zogchen master, he taught it because he, presumably, and many other people, have found it helpful. Helpful in what way? Well, he says at the very beginning of instruction, do this until you feel the, the energies, the vital energies, the prana, start to converge in the center. In the center. Well, here's the exercise. And what you'll feel that somatically. You really will feel energies coming into the center and starting to come up. It's a somatic experience, a tactile experience. As you do so, um, more mentally, it's very likely that you'll feel kind of a coalescence, a converging, a groundedness, a unification of your awareness. You'll feel samadhi starting to arise. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Diego. Just a little bit too sharp, too bright, I think they call it. And so you may really feel also that kind of that unification, that coming together of the mind, and then the somatic correlate of these energies coming to the center. Well, there's a good reason for that. In first-person physiology, this runs through the whole Indian tradition, Hindu and Buddhist alike, there's two side channels corresponding, two side channels of energy, or prana, and these are correlated to two of the three root mental afflictions, craving and hostility. Hostility and craving, left and right. And so when we are experiencing, especially when we're cognitively fusing with craving and hostility, the energies tend to run through those two, one of those two side channels. So, rasa over on the right for craving. And then the, it's called Tangman Tibetan, the left channel, more for aversion, anger, hatred. And so when we're experiencing that, more goes on here, the left. Well, with settling the mind in its natural state, as with other shamatha practices, we're seeking to avoid the cognitive fusion with either of those, come into the center, and the central channel corresponds to wisdom. Right? And so, as we're doing this, the idea is that the energies will gradually how do you say, their, their flow will decrease from the two side channels and the knots down there in the navel chakra, down below the ab, below the navel, they'll start to loosen up and the pranas will start coming into the center. And when they do, well, you're right on the track to samadhi. And so that's a reason for it. So Leda Lingma says, do this until you feel the energies starting to come in the center. Now, exactly how does that happen? I can give only my only, just my own superficial interpretation based upon first-person experience. So that's really quite a shallow pool to draw from. But I do have a sense of there being greater looseness there. It's kind of obvious. You've created a bigger space. The breathing is very soothing. Overall, real quality of relaxation. The mind also in that stillness, quietly, loosely attending to whatever comes up. So looseness in body and mind. And then, deliberately, this looseness, this expansion of the abdomen... It just seems like there's more space for the knots to start to unravel and the energies to start flowing where it's good for them to flow, and that is coming to the center. 
Now, overall, on the practice of shamatha of any kind, as you progress in mindfulness of breathing and what have you, the energies will start to flow less through the side channels. They'll start to through, flow more through the central channel. And just through shamatha, let alone vipassana and dumo and state of completion and dzogchen and all of that, just shamatha, the energies will start to flow through the center and they'll come up. This pranas, pranas specifically associated with the mind, will start to converge there at the heart. Right? And when they really converge there, well, that's when your coarse mind dissolves into subtle mind. Subtle continuum of mental consciousness, to use the Galuka terminology, or substrate consciousness, to use the Dzogchen terminology. And so, generally speaking, here's a bit more first-person physiology. When we're operating out of our ordinary, daytime, coarse, dualistic mind, so ordinary mind, the pranas associated with the mind, because some are associated with digestion and evacuation, extension and uh, contraction of limbs, and so forth, but those vital energies strongly associated with the mind, during the waking state, ordinary mind, they tend to converge in this chakra up here in the forehead. In other words, frontal cortex in the brain up there. No surprise there. And so that's where they tend to be, right? Now in the dreaming state, then it's a different, different dimension of consciousness. And so while dreaming, those same energies tend to descend from the chakras up here in the head. There's one on the top, of course, but there's one here behind the eyebrows. And the, and the, the pranas tend to converge at the throat. That's why in classic instructions, on dream yoga, it's very commonly taught, visualize something, a pearl of red light, or Padmasambhava, or a lotus, or a mantra, seed syllable, something, at the throat syllable. Because as you visualize there, as you concentrate there, that draws prana there. So you're setting yourself up, and according to the classic teachings of Padmasambhava, he gives you this elaborate visualization with a lotus and a whole bunch of stuff to visualize it at the throat chakra. And then he says, fall asleep while you're holding that. And so either he was speaking to people with very different quality of mind than we, we, we modern people, or he had a great sense of humor. <laughs> In my experience, it's kind of hard to hold a visualization as I fall asleep, but clearly some people can do it. And so there it is. Now, another practice that one can do in the context of dream yoga and one sees it elsewhere as well in Dzogchen practice as a shamatha preliminary, is to focus on a bindu, an orb of light, at the heart chakra. Well, that then draws the prana into the heart chakra, into the substrate consciousness. So for dreaming the throat, for waking consciousness up here in the head, and for substrate consciousness, deep sleep, and shamatha, heart chakra. Right? So the energy is coming into the center and making their way up to the heart chakra. Well, that's going to be a good energetic correlate to what's taking place in the meditative process where your mind is freeing itself of the extremes of craving and hostility, coming into the center, freeing itself from laxity and dullness, laxity and excitation, coming into the center, getting balanced. Your mind slips into shamatha, into the substrate consciousness, energy slip into heart chakra. So, lions at the gate well, having the energies course through these side channels, that's, an, that's a lion at the gate because your mind will just keep on gyrating between craving and aversion, craving and hostility, like that. In the yoga tradition, there is very helpfully, in a very helpful fashion, an intermediate state there between the ethics and, be, and before going into the pranayama, the actual regulation of the breath, to try to bring about this shift so the Pranas start coming into the center. Because the Hindus know about this centuries before the Buddhists did. 
uh, in this in, in this historical era. There's something very helpful, and that is if your body has deformations or real tightness, um, just various uh, blockages, blockages of prana, mus- muscular contraction, maybe injury, and so forth and so on, on a gross tissue level, tissue, ligaments, muscles, if, if it's stiff, if it's rigid, if there are blockages, then, as Kim can tell you much better than I, then asanas may be very helpful. On that coarser level, it's doing it's doing what the pranayama is doing, but it's working at a coarser level, and there's a preparation. So first of all, establish foundation of ethics, then into the asanas, getting the body limber, supple, fluid, and then going to the subtler level of pranayama, and then on into that, from there, into, in, right into meditation. So that can be helpful. It's not a great strength of Buddhism, the practice of asanas. It does come up here and there, but it tends to be at a very high level. Whereas it's really that right there at the foundation in the, uh, in the yoga traditions of India. So that can be very helpful. So Anil, I wanted to ask you, because uh, I know you've had so much experience here, I'm sure much more than I, anything that you might add in terms of the gentle boss breathing that I've not covered or any other insights about why it might be helpful, how it works? Anything coming up? Because I know you've had a lot of teachings on it. It's very helpful, yeah. Uh, when when the energy begins to stabilize in the central channel, then you do feel a change in the inside of the nostrils, the way the air functions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of... Uh, An indicator there. So not only feeling in the abdomen, where you certainly can feel yeah. it, but also up at, up at the nostrils as well. Yes, and yeah. then the breath becomes so subtle, almost imperceptible, when mm-hmm. it begins to stabilize. So right, don't right. worry about it. Yeah, thank you. And then, do you have any other insight why it would work? You know, why this, why, why holding that fullness should be effective? I mean, I gave my best shot. Anything you might add? What you said is is here because you're creating the space Mm -hmm. so that the energies can enter the central channel, Mm -hmm. whereas usually there's no space at all. Yeah. So when we're really relaxed, when we're really relaxed, and uh, you're just you're doing your shamatha practice, then naturally also the breath will become imperceptible. So at that mm-hmm. time, the airs naturally enter the central channel. But in this sense, with the vase, with the gentle vase breathing, then it really is very helpful to gently do it. Don't force whatever you do. Don't mm-hmm. force. Absolutely. That's what makes this so safe. I think you also you teach this. You don't have any worries about, it. oh, will people do something that will damage them? Well, not if you all of these simple instructions that it is so gentle. So, very good. Thank you. Comments are very helpful. Yep. Hola, so. And you would agree, Anila, that this... I would not recommend the supine position. Do you agree on that one? Definitely not. That's what Anila says, yeah. So, you clearly want... And also that sense of settling, that when you're breathing out, that kind of like, oh, I'm grounded. I'm grounded. Well, you're not going to get that in the soup. It would just be weird, frankly, to do this and have to puff up your belly with muscle power. That, that's just weird. Or even in a reclining chair. No, you want a good posture for this one. Good posture for this one. I'd also like to reinforce what you said about the full phase. Don't try it unless you oh, yeah. have a oh, yeah. really good teacher. I did a lot of damage in a retreat. Mm-hmm. So, Anala, just reinforcing what I, I feel so emphatically, and we're old friends here, and boy, on the same page. 
if you ever hear about it. You, you can find books. I mean, there are books out there that will tell you, that will give you descriptions. This is what you should visualize. This is what, this is, this is how you do the retention, the bandha. This is what you should, this is what you do with your arms and so forth. If you want to find the books, they're out there. But really, especially everybody living by podcasts, Anilah is a very experienced meditator, we both say very emphatically, do not try this on your own. The chances of you're doing damage to yourself are so high. It's absolutely not worth the risk. Absolutely not. Oh, yeah. And overall, as a general theme, and I think Kim would probably also bear me out on this one, it's a lot easier to damage your prana system than it is to repair it. And that could be done by improper improper breathing. So I'll give one example, and then I'll stop. We want to get back, but this is not a, not a trivial story. My Revere teacher, my primary Theravada teacher, was this. He's passed away now, but a marvelous monk. I told you about him before, Balankota Ananamaitreya. Truly extraordinary teacher, monk, scholar, meditator, and such a good spiritual friend. And uh, so I knew him. I, I lived with him for some months, 1980-81, at his uh, temple in Sri Lanka. See, he was about 80 at that time. He lived to about 100, give or take a couple of years. And he told me that decades before, decades before, uh, that he had gone so far in his Vipassana practice that his meditation teacher told him, if you continue on this path of Vipassana, as you are now, you'll become a stream emperor. You're, you're quite close. Well, his name is Ananamaitreya. Ananamaitreya. It's not an accident. He has been praying for who knows how long, dedicating his merits. As a Theravada monk, 100% really solid Theravada monk, scholar, everything. He's been dedicating his merits to becoming the personal attendant of the Buddha Maitreya. Ananda Maitreya, to become the Ananda for Maitreya. That's been his passion. And who knows how many lifetimes, but it, it's the current that runs through his whole life. And I knew him when he was 80 or so. And so this was his great, great yearning, his great prayer. And so, and it had to be probably 40 years earlier, it was at least 30 years, maybe 40 years earlier, a long time earlier. Here he was, this monk, he'd been monk, I think almost all his adult life. And his teacher said, well, if you continue to become stream enterer, well, if you become stream enterer, I think it's nine lifetimes. That even if you just sit around and, you know, play pool or play poker or something, in nine lifetimes, you're going to become an arhat. You've entered the stream. It's like falling off a bridge into a, into a curtain, into a river. And even if you swim upstream, you're still going to get to the ocean within nine lifetimes. You know, you just can't help it. So you can get there faster, you can get there slower, but nine lifetimes and you're out. You, you just get, you know, you, you just get ejected out of samsara. And in the Theravada view, once you're out, if you have any interest in coming back in, you can't. You know, you're out forever. Absolutely, I mean, eternally, you're never coming back. Well, in the Theravada view, the Mahayana view, the Buddha Maitreya is not coming for a long time. A long, long time. Longer than nine lifetimes. And so he didn't want to become an arhat. Not yet. I want to become an arhat. I, I want to wait until Maitreya comes. I want to be his attendant. And I'll become an arhat under him. But I don't want to become an arhat. I'll never see him. I'll never be able to be his attendant. So he stopped practicing Vipassana. <laughs> yeah, he said, no, I don't want to become stream enter. Not yet. I'll wait until Maitreya comes. I'll bide my time. But he then, but he's a very virtuous man, totally dedicated to Dharma, but he didn't, wasn't ready to become an arhat or a stream enter. So he said, well, Okay, I'll do other kind of meditation. Those Hindus don't become stream enters. They don't want to become stream enters. I'll go study with some Hindu. 
So he went up to India. He went up to India. And he found some Swami and said, well, why don't I pray pranayama? Why don't I practice some pranayama? Uh, that won't make, won't make me a Sriandra. You know, pranayama, Sriandra, I don't even made a big connection there. So then I'll learn some more and develop my abilities. So whoever this was, some anonymous yogi, taught him some pranayama. And within a rather short time, he was severely damaged. He really damaged himself. He told me, this is from his lips to my ear, he said he could not lie down. If he lied, if he lay down, his body would be racked by pain. It was just, he was, he was really damaged on an energetic level. I have no idea what practices he was doing, but whatever it did, in a relatively short time, he really damaged himself. He could hardly sleep. As soon as he started going over, then the body would be so much pain and distress in the body. He was at his wit's end. He just went off to do a little bit of pranayama, and what he got was just massive damage. So he was, here was this Buddhist monk wandering around India, his body ruined on an energetic level. And then happily, he learned about one Swami, his name was Narayan Ananda. Narayan, Narayan Ananda. Hindu Swami. Lived up in Rishikesh. Lived in an ashram up there. And word had it, this man really knew what he was talking about. He was a true master of pranayama. So, my teacher Ananda Maitreya sought him out. Maybe he can help. You know, here's a best person who really knows what he's doing. So he made his way up to Rishikesh and came to visit this yogi, classic yogi. I actually met him years later. I met him not long after that. He's still alive. Now, I'm sure he's passed away now, but in 1980, 81, I met him in 81. So this, this yogi saw him and my teacher Ananda Maitreya started to say, oh, Swami, and the Swami just, just hushed him up immediately. And he just went, I'll, I'll do it. I'm, I'm not going to do anything except for mimic like a chimpanzee. You know, he just took his hands and he just swept them from top to bottom as if he was combing him, but he didn't touch him. He just swept him with his hands like that, his hands up and down. Didn't even let him describe what was the problem was. He just, be quiet. And then just put his hands up and down. And he said, now, go, in, go into the room there and get a good, get, get a good night's sleep. And Ananda Maitreya said, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. As soon as I... Just go into the room, lie down, have a good night's sleep. And he could. He lay down, and for the first time in days, he actually could lie down without just being terribly distressed in the body. He lay down, got first night's sleep in a long time, woke up refreshed, because that was not the complete cure. And then the Swami took him out into the mango grove behind his, behind the, behind the ashram. And he, he sat him down, the two of them facing each other, and he said, now you do what I do. And then he just led him through some breathing techniques. You, you just watch me do whatever I do. You just do it. And then, in a matter of relatively short time, he was able to heal him. And then, my teacher had a wonderfully productive and happy and fruitful life from then on. But he was so fortunate that he could find a true master that could heal. Whereas anybody can damage you. Any amateur can damage you. So, I spent time, that was five minutes, five or ten minutes, but it's just reinforcing this point. I know that Kim would agree. I know that Anila has, has made this point. As soon as you start manipulating, messing with the breath, manipulating the breath, this is not a criticism of Dumo or the, the, the Vas breathing. I mean, it's powerful practice. And people like Nidarepa, so many great adepts have gotten tremendous benefit. And of course, it's not just a, a way to cut down on heating bills. 
I mean, all they really wanted to do was keep warm. There are much easier ways to keep warm, even in midwinter. No, it's, it has much deeper significance. It's all about realizing emptiness in the innate mind of clear light. That's what it's really for. And the heat is simply a side product, a byproduct. Not that useful if you're living in India. I mean, really, how much heat do you need? You know, but up in Tibet, it turned out to be very useful. But whether it's pranayama in the Hindu tradition, or whether it's the vas breathing in the Tibetan tradition, other types of ways of tsalung practice are called tsalung, or the uh, the channels and energy practices. There's a lot of them in Vajrayana Buddhism. Um, just this one piece of advice can really avoid a lot of grief, and that is, don't go there unless you have a really qualified teacher who will not only teach you, but guide you afterwards. So I'm here with you for eight weeks, and then whether I'll see some of you ever again, we don't know. But I will go away feeling these three methods, shamatha, as I've taught them, and the four measurables, they will not harm you. They will not harm you. If you practice them as we've done here, practice them as much as you like, they won't harm you. You know, Really, they're very safe. And so is this practice of settling the mind, and so is gentle boss breathing. But these more powerful practices, they can be marvelously effective and beneficial if they're taught very skillfully and if you have follow-up. A person who is monitoring, guiding you, helping you if you go astray, is there all the way through. Then they can be terrific. Without that, I would steer clear. I really would. Like playing with nitroglycerin. Olaso, enough of that. Please find a comfortable position. And now we'll practice the gentle boss breathing. Give it a try. It's not mandatory. If you find it helpful, practice it. It's rather like counting the breaths. If it's helpful, do it. If it's not, don't worry about it. It's not essential. First of all, let's slip into the comfort zone as we settle the body, the respiration, the mind in their natural states. And as a preliminary exercise, you may practice mindfulness of breathing. You may, if you wish, count 21 breaths.
then let your eyes be at least partially open, at least enough to let the light in. Vacantly rest your gaze on the space in front of you without focusing on any visual object. And now, as you're very familiar with the practice, few words are needed. Direct the full force of your mindfulness single-pointedly to the domain of mental experience, the space of the mind and whatever events arise within that space. Simply observe whatever comes up without distraction, without grasping. Practice as you know how. But add this element at this time. Experiment. See that the breathing just flows naturally, effortlessly, without manipulation. But hold that fullness of the abdomen. Very gentle fullness throughout the entire course of the in and out breath. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
Russell. Um, it just doesn't have a name. It's um, I, this is interesting. I'm learning something here that uh, someone here doesn't matter who it is uh, ordered some books, presumably from America. Uh, and, and, but as it turns out, the cost of postage fees for each one is quite high. Um, so one, this person needs to choose. So between genuine happiness and the four measurables, is the content quite different? Yeah, the, the, the genuine happiness is really the overview of shamatha, the four applications of mindfulness, the four immeasurables, uh, dream yoga, Mahamudra Vipassana, and finally Dzogchen. So it's quite an overview. I think of a very balanced array of practices, whereas the four measurables just goes into those four measurables and really not anything else. So if, if what you're really looking for is kind of a book that gives very readable, I had a marvelous editor for Genuine Happiness. She's really first rate. So it's quite a readable book, I think. If you like to get a really good context for what we're doing here with a larger framework, then I'd rec- recommend Genuine Happiness uh, as a complement to the Attention Revolution, which of course is about shamatha, if you'd really like to have something that focuses in much more specifically on the four measurables, then the four measurables is the book. Yep. And then still in the mind, of course, then focuses in on this uh, marvelous text, this mind treasure of Dujum Lingba, and specifically on the tech, on the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. So, here's a question from Mark. You mentioned the death the Death Star, oh yeah, the Death Star of our mind, and its soft spot, yes, uh, which we need to bombard by trying to get a direct insight into its emptiness, emptiness of the mind, yeah, that's exactly the teaching of the, I've, I've seen it most explicitly, oh, it's all over the Dzogchen and Mahamudra traditions both, that's really a focus. And when one gets that one, then the insight into the emptiness of all other phenomena is derived by that. Again, I want to be careful here. And that is in the classic presentations, I'm thinking especially of the, the teachings by Jujum Lingba. He comes to this again and again in the Vajra Essence in three other texts of his that I've translated. Buddhahood without meditation and the commentary, the Shab Vajra Tantra, the Intenta Samadra, Samadha Vajra. He comes back again and again. And he doesn't focus solely on the mind. He focuses on the mind for sure. But then he looks at physical phenomena, material phenomena, and so forth and so on. And the theme there is to recognize how all of these phenomena are empty of the names that we designate upon them. And of course, a lot more can be said. So it's not the case, and I've heard this also from Galupa, from my Galupa Lamas, it's not the case that if you realize the emptiness of mind, then you're finished, and then everything else is just completely transparent. It is to say that having that realization, then, if it, if, if it really is a deep realization, then when you turn your attention to physical phenomena, to space, to time, and so forth, that it will be relatively easy to realize the emptiness of those phenomena. And sooner or later, of course, one really must realize the emptiness of all phenomena. That is, but this is a really good place to start. So it's not the only possible place, um, but it's a very good place that is strongly emphasized. So, yeah. So, since emptiness is a negation, can you elaborate on what positive or... confirmations automatically can be derived from that insight and why this can be derived from that insight. For example, how does it relate to suffering or the annihilation of consciousness or other meaningful phenomena? Annihilation of consciousness. Hmm. Um, I'll be brief there and hopefully we'll have some time for some questions right here live. Um, There is a debate about the nature of emptiness, whether it is a simple negation or what Jeffrey Hopkins calls being one of my teachers, a very respected teacher, 
um, he calls it what an, a non-affirming negation, a simple negation, a sure absence. So sure absence of what inherent nature. Whereas in the Zhentong school, in various writings you'll find in the in the Nyingma, the Kaku, and other traditions, you'll find it more presented as uh, a partial negation, and that is emptiness of something, but also having a quality of luminosity, like that. Dong cell, dong cell is very very common. And so, oh, in these teachings, for example, by um, Shapkar, Shapkar Rinpoche, Flight of the Garuda, he is going right in the nature of the mind, and he said, now, probe in the nature of the mind and recognize its clear and empty nature. Clear means luminous, brilliant, transparent. So, one word, sel, sel. Luminous, clear, transparent, vivid. But luminous is good. So ascertain the luminous and empty nature of awareness and rest in that awareness and just stay there, right? Well, lumin- luminosity is an affirmative quality. It's an affirmation. It's not an absence. Of, it's not an absence of darkness. It's a presence of clarity, right? So I think the real issue here is not that I would. I frankly, from my perspective, now just my opinion, I would not say that the wrong dong view, which is met- methodologically approaching the realization of emptiness in a, a method that is one of simple negation. And if you add on anything more to it, you're cluttering it up, junking it up, and you're ruining the method. But I would say, if you're following that approach of the Rang Dong, do not think of emptiness as being anything other than a sheer absence, a mere absence of inherent nature. If you add anything onto it, you're just messing it up. It's like throwing sugar into your gas tank. doesn't matter what school. If that's the method you're... If that's the method you're following, think of it just like Tsongkhapa said. And not he, not he alone. He's, he's not the only one. Because the method suggests that you're finding the target. This is classic Tsongkhapa now. You find the target. You find when you're grasping onto, for example, self. This is how the Galupas start. And it's a very, very powerful and wise method. Focusing in on what is the nature of yourself. Who are you? When I say, when I praise you, when I blame you, are you just sitting there feeling, you know, the presence of I am. Identify what is this deeply ingrained, really instinctual, not learned, not learned tendency of reifying, grasping onto self. Okay? Does that exist? The answer is yes, it does. Can you identify it? Yes, you can. So those are two things that do exist. Right? And then you ask, what is it that you're grasping onto? What is the focus of your attention as you're grasping onto I am and reifying or grasping onto the true existence of yourself? What are you grasping? What is the object? Right? And it's the object identifying that. You recognize that that self that you're grasping onto has no existence. I'll give a silly example, but it's silly, and being silly, it's transparent. And that is, imagine that I'm delusional, and I think I'm Napoleon Bonaparte. Okay? So I have to put my hand here, right? And I start speaking in a French accent, or a very crummy imitation of that, you know? But imagine, actually think, not that I'm a reincarnation of Napoleon, I'm not actually Napoleon, you know, I'm really a French general. And I walk around, strutting around, thinking I'm a Napoleon. And anybody doesn't salute, I get really upset. C'est terrible, je suis mon général. After the, after the, um, you know, prison for you. Yeah, so I'm getting really crazy when people not showing me the respect that I deserve as Napoleon. 
I could really, now number one, is it possible to be so deluded? The answer is yes. Could I really be grasping onto, I am Napoleon, I really am Napoleon. You know, I, I just have a really long life. Go figure. You know, <laughs> could I be thinking that? Could there be in my mind a Napoleon that I'm grasping onto? The answer is yes. And it's possible. Right? Is there any Napoleon here? No. It's grasped by a delusional mind and the object of that delusional mind has no existence whatsoever. There is no Napoleon here. Period. Even if everybody agrees with me that I'm Napoleon, there's still no Napoleon here. So it's a total absence of Napoleon. Right? So like the little boy in the joke who thought he was a kernel of corn, there's no kernel of corn there. You know, you may think so. You may think the chickens are going to get you, but you're wrong. So it's seeing that sheer absence of that which is apprehended, held, grasped by the delusional mind that reifies self. And you go into that sheer absence, you realize it, and then you sustain that awareness of the sheer absence. It's a simple negation. And through that way, according to Chantikirti and Tsongkhapa and many others, you can move. It's mysterious, but you can move from a conceptual realization of that to a non-conceptual realization of that and become an Arya. Okay? So, there's one method. Now, the method used in in the Mahamudran Dzogchen tradition isn't quite that, it's not quite the same. It's not the same. I've translated now multiple presentations by Dujum Lingba and other, other masters, Kama Chakme and others. It's not the same. They don't make such a big deal of finding the, the you know, the object negation and, and then applying reasonings to it, the fourfold reasoning, the sixfold reasoning, and the chariot reasoning and the diamond, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're not doing that. It's a different strategy. And so if you use a different strategy, then as you're going in with a different strategy, you may go in with the awareness that there is an absence of self, but the awareness with which you apprehend that emptiness is by nature luminous. So what you're attending to is an emptiness, but your awareness of it is luminous, and the luminosity of your subjective awareness and the emptiness of that which you're apprehending are non-dual. And therefore the strategy itself can be one. Different method. But still realizing emptiness. Right? Now, having said that, His Holiness has commented, Dalai Lama has commented, that it's, pra- it's possible to realize emptiness by, by way of practicing Dumo, which entails detailed visualization, the breathing exercise and so forth, the energy coming into the center. And through that practice, without, without necessarily having to go through all the reasonings of Nagarjuna, you may realize emptiness by way of Dumo practice. You may realize emptiness by way of Jut practice, cutting through practice. Or, according to Ringutuku, and he's a very fine lama, very fine lama, wonderful, I know he's very incredibly sweet and humble lama as well, but he's also really knowledgeable. He said, you know, it does happen. Now, this is Ringutuku. I don't speak with any authority. Ringutuku, substantial lama. He said, it's possible that you may gain first insight into Rikpa without already having prior insight into emptiness. You may, it's possible, to go directly and have a realization of Rikpa and to sustain that realization, and by the power of your realization of Rikpa, realize the emptiness of phenomena. It's possible also. The classic strategy is shamatha, vipassana, realize emptiness, and then go on to texture or on to Mahamudra. That's classic. But some people are gifted. Some people are gifted. You know? So they may realize it out of sequence. It kind of makes sense. If we think of the analogy, the analogy of lucid dreaming, 
I think I've given the story of meeting somebody in the dream and the person while you're in the dream and you don't know you're dreaming. Somebody teaches you shamatha, you achieve shamatha, then somebody teaches you vipassana, and you start investigating all the phenomena in the dream, and you realize the emptiness of all the objective phenomena, all the subjective, you realize the emptiness of yourself as a person in the dream, that there's no one really here from your own side within the dream. And so you realize that emptiness, again, within the dream, by having a good majamika teacher, and realize the emptiness of all the objective phenomena, all the subjective phenomena, emptiness of the very bifurcation of subject and object, right? And still know, and still not know that you're dreaming. You could just feel it's all dreamlike. It really is dreamlike. Wow, it's really dreamlike. You know, and everybody around you is laughing their heads off. And, well, dreamlike, give me a break. You know, dream, if, if they're awake, they'd be looking in on you and say, wow, when are you going to get it? You know? And then you meet a Dzogchen master and say, this isn't dreamlike, this is a dream. And then you become lucid. Maybe he just says, jump up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But one can see that you'd be very much primed for realizing that that, this is all analogy, of course, but you'd be very much primed for becoming lucid. And that is bringing in waking consciousness into the dream, being awake within the dream, if you've already had realization of emptiness. That'd be very helpful. But quite a number of you have had lucid dreams. That you know that you may have a lucid dream before you've realized the emptiness of all the appearances in the dream. You may just become lucid. Something really odd happens. You may have a teacher named Tilopa who smacks you in the face with a sandal and whoa, suddenly you become lucid. You know, could happen. So people become, you know, there are so many stories in Dzogchen and the Zen tradition, the Chan tradition, not always simply conveyed by words, but different types of activities, some kind of an anomaly that jars you out, knocks you out, and suddenly you're having realization, you know, of Rikpa. And then, clearly, and for those of you who have had lucid dreams, you know that if you're really lucid, to the extent that you're lucid, you know you're dreaming, then you don't really need reasoning to come to the conclusion that everything you're experiencing does not exist from its, from its own side, substantially, inherently real. If you know you're dreaming, you know that you as a persona in the dream are not really there as a persona in the dream. So this is why I will go out on a limb that if you are asked by somebody who thinks that dream is totally reality and everybody in the dream has a mom and dad and grandparents and great-grandparents and so forth and they've just been here, you know, their lineage has been here forever and they're speaking to you and lucid and they say, are you a man? Well, if my man, you mean, do I belong here? Am I really one of you? Am I real? Can you take me seriously, literally, that as I appear to be a man, I really am a man? Uh, no. This is a sheer apparition. I'm not a man. All you're seeing is an appearance of a man. But no, I'm not a man. Not as you understand it. It's just a sheer mirage. It's a, No, I'm not a man. I'm sorry. And I'm not any of those other things. I'm not a god, not a demon, not a spirit, not a fairy, not a leprechaun or anything else. I'm awake. You're not, it seems, because you asked that question. So, insofar as one is awake, you don't even need to ask the question of whether phenomena exist from their own side. So clearly, if you really have realization of emptiness, I think, I'm quite convinced, there's no way that you can have deep realization of Rigpa and at the same time think, oh, everything's really out there, objectively, inherently. Because as your realization of Rigpa goes deep, and out of that, when you see, then what spontaneously comes out is seeing all appearances as displays, Rigpa itself, 
displays the creative energy, the creative potential of Rikpa itself, but there displays a pristine awareness, which means there's no way they could be existing from their own side. Just as, again to draw an analogy, if you're really lucid in a dream, then, if you have a bit of terminology, you know that every appearance in the dream is nothing other than illuminations displays of your substrate consciousness. And the appearance are cast upon the three-dimensional holodeck of your substrate. But there's nothing really there. Even though, again, if Katinka, I'll give the same example, even if though Katinka was appearing in my dream, I could cut to come over and touch her hard knee, which would be feel an awful lot like my knee. You know, very similar, knees are knees. And if, are you, oh, is that really you? And I'd knock on you, knock, 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 and feel, well, she must be really there. But if I'm lucid, and eventually just tactile sensations arising, there's no knee there. There's nothing inherently there from its own side. And the fact that I can knock on it, big deal. I can also knock on the door, and then walk through it. All depends on how you want to perceive it. So, so something like that. But I think it is helpful to recognize there are different approaches there. Because one is only familiar with one. That's where dogmatism and sectarianism, and then so much misery rooted in religion, comes out. By not just not recognizing kind of the obvious, that people are following different methods and they're getting really good results. And some people, you know, if they're following a really good path, like the very noble Galupa tradition, but they don't practice, and they just learn how to debate and debate and debate, no benefit at all, even though they can talk the talk. You know? And that goes the same thing for, for Nyingma, and Sakya, and Theravada, and everything else. If you're just studying it, learning how to be really clever with your mouth, uh, be born as a very clever parrot. So... So that's that, something like that. Good, so enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow morning.